Section 40 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Murphy, Richmond, Virginia. Chapter 12, Part 2, France, by Stanley Leeds. The Peace of Frankfurt, July 1489, proved abortive so far as regards the affairs of Brittany, though it gave Maximilian a breathing space for making favorable terms with the cities of the Netherlands. Meanwhile, the state of war in Brittany continued. Like Mary of Burgundy before her, Anne sought a deliverer from unwelcome suitors and the stress of war in the Austrian archduke. Covetous as usual of a profitable marriage, Maximilian snatched a moment from the claims of other business and caused full powers to be made out for the conclusion by proxy of a marriage contract on his behalf. Ten days afterwards, the king of Hungary and conqueror of Austria, Matthias Corvinus, died, April 6, 1490. The prospect of recovering Vienna and acquiring Hungary opened before the eyes of Maximilian. He was at once immersed in correspondence and preparations, then in war. Successes were followed by difficulties, difficulties by reverses. The war in Hungary was closed in November 1491 by the Peace of Pressburg. Meanwhile, his emissaries had not found their course quite clear in Brittany. A Spanish suitor was in the field, and a series of delays followed. At length, December 1490, the wedding of Maximilian to the Breton heiress was solemnly concluded by his proxy. But, while to protect his bride, even to make the bond secure, his personal presence was needed. The bridegroom lingered in eastern lands, and the French pressed on. Albert, disgusted at his own rebuff, surrendered the castle of Nantes to Suzerain, and the town was shortly occupied. Henry VII and Ferdinand sent no aid. The Duke of Orleans was liberated and reconciled to the king, who was beginning to act on his own behalf. The Duchess was besieged at Rennes and was forced to accept the French terms, consisting of the rupture of her marriage with the Roman king and her union with the king of France. Without waiting for the needful dispensations, the contract was concluded and the marriage followed, December 1491. The marriage with Anne involved a breach of the Treaty of Arras, 1482, which stipulated that Charles should marry Margaret of Austria, Indeed, the marriage had been solemnized, though not consummated, and led to the retrocession in 1493 to Maximilian of Franche-Comté, Artois, and minor places. Yet the gain was adequate. Brittany was not as yet united to the French crown, but preserved its liberties and separate government. It was, however, agreed that Anne, if she survived her husband, should be bound to marry the successor, or presumptive successor, to the crown. Louis Twelfth, on his accession, realized his early wish, obtained a divorce from his saintly, unhappy wife, and became Anne's third royal consort. Dangerous plans were at one time pushed by Anne for the marriage of her daughter to the heir of Burgundy, Spain, and Austria. But these plans fortunately broke down, and the marriage of her elder daughter and heiress Claude to Francis of Anjou prevented the separation of Brittany from France. In 1532, the estates of Brittany, under pressure, agreed to the union of the province to the crown, 
in its formal independence actually came to an end on the accession of King Henry II in 1547. The Duke of Anjou, as holding, in addition, Lorraine, Provence, the titular crown of Naples, and the family appanage of Maine, was another powerful rival to the king. But Charles VII had married an Angevin wife, and was in intimate alliance with the House of Anjou. Throughout his long reign, the Duke René, 1431-81, more interested in literature and art and other peaceful pastimes than in political intrigue, gave little trouble to France. His son, John of Calabria, joined in the League of Public Weal, but was afterwards reconciled to Louis XI. He lost his life in an adventurous attempt to win a crown in Catalonia, 1470. The grandson, Nicholas of Calabria, was one of the aspirants to the hand of Mary of Burgundy, but died in 1472. The independence of Anjou, like that of most of the later appendages, was strictly limited. The duke received neither aisle nor aid, but generally drew a fixed pension. Strictly, he had not the right to maintain or levy troops, though this rule inevitably failed to act in time of revolution. But the domain profits were considerable, and the lack of direct royal government was a considerable diminution of the king's authority, and might at any time become a serious danger. In 1474, Louis XI took over the administration of Anjou, and in 1476, as it was reported that René had been meditating the bequest of Provence to Charles of Burgundy, the king forced on the old duke a treaty, whereby he engaged never to cede any part of that province to the enemies of France. On the duke's death in 1480, his nephew Charles succeeded, but only survived him for a year, when by his will all the possessions of Anjou, except Lorraine, reverted to the crown. The process of consolidation was proceeding apace. Provence had never hitherto been reckoned as part of France. The tradition of feudal independence was nowhere stronger than in Guyenne. The revolt of the South against the Black Prince was occasioned by the levy of a fouage at a time when France was accepting a far more burdensome system of arbitrary taxation almost without a murmur. The great principalities of the south were Armagnac, Albret, and Foix. The counts of Armagnac had been associated with the worst tradition of the anarchical period. Jean V carried into private life the lawless instincts of the family. Imprisoned by Charles VII for correspondence with the English government, he was liberated and treated with favor by Louis XI. He requited his benefactor by revolt and treachery in the war of the public wheel. Pardoned, he continued his game of disobedience and intrigue. The king's writ could hardly be said to run in Armagnac and its appendant provinces. The king's taxes were collected with difficulty, if at all. The count's men-at-arms owned no restraint. Driven out in 1470, Jean returned under the protection of the king's brother, the Duke of Guyenne. In 1473, a fresh expedition was sent against him. Lector was surrendered, and the Count killed, perhaps murdered. His fate deserves less sympathy than it has found. The independence of Armagnac, Roge, and La Marche was at an end. His brother Jacques had a similar history. Raised to the Duchy of Nemours and the Paris by Louis XI, he became a traitor in 1465 and was implicated in all the treacherous machinations of his brother. In 
His fate was delayed till 1476, when he was arrested. His trial left something to be desired in point of fairness, but there can be little doubt that substantial justice was done when he was executed in 1477. Charles VIII restored the duchy to his sons, one of whom died in the king's service at the Battle of Serignola. With him, the male heir of Armagnac became extinct. The House of Albrecht was more fortunate. Though implicated in the League of Public Weal and in the Breton Rebellion, this house incurred no forfeiture. But the long rule of Alain Legrand, 1471-1522, illustrates pathetically the humiliations, vexations, and losses that so great a prince had constantly to endure through the steady pressure of the king's agents, lawyers, and financiers, and in some cases through the ill will of his own subjects. In spite of his vast domains, his appeal courts, his more than princely revenue, he was unable to meet his still greater expenses, swelled by the new luxury and by legal cost, without a heavy pension from the king. A man reckoned to have received from the crown in his fifty years no less than six millions LT cannot, however powerful he was, be regarded as independent. By marriage, his house in the next generation acquired Navarre with Bois, and was ultimately merged in Bourbon and in the crown. Other appendages call for little remark. Bourbon, with its appendants, Auverge, Beaujolais, Forêt, and 1477, La Marche, was the most important. It was preserved from reunion to the crown by the influence of Anne of Beaujeu, who secured it for her daughter and her husband, the Count of Montpensier. The Duchy of Orleans, with the County of Blois, was united to the crown at the accession of Louis XII. None of these important fiefs were free from the royal taxes or authority, though they enjoyed some administrative independence. Princes and minor nobles alike were gradually brought into the king's obedience by the king's pay. While the poor gentlemen entered the king's service as guards, as men-at-arms, or even as archers, the great princes drew the king's pensions, or aspired to the lucrative captainship of a body of ordinances. If of sufficient dignity and influence, they might hope for the still more valuable post of governor in some province. When they had once learned to rely on the mercenary stipend, they could not easily bring themselves to exchange it for the old honorable, though lawless, independence. The provincial nobility became dependent on the court, and, in large measure, resident there. This process begins in early times, but advances more rapidly under Charles VII and his successors, and is nearly completed under Francis I. The third order, that of the bourgeois of the Bonville, has lost all the political independence that it had ever possessed. The free communes of the North and Northeast had succumbed as much by their own financial mismanagement as from any other cause. Throughout the 14th century, the intervention of the king in the internal affairs of the towns became a normal experience, and Charles V actually suppressed a number of communes. A considerable degree of municipal liberty is left, but the power of political action is gone. The government is as a rule in the hands of a comparatively small number of well-to-do bourgeois, who support the king's authority, and from whom is drawn the most efficient class of financiers and administrators. 
In time of need, they help the king with loans and exceptional gifts. Many of the towns are exempt from tie, but the aids fall heavily upon them. Louis XI continued on the same lines. He granted abundant privileges to towns, fairs, markets, nobility to their officers, and the right of purchasing noble fiefs. But their intervention in politics was not encouraged. On a slight provocation, the king took the town government into his hands, and heavy was the punishment of a town like Rheims or Bourges that ventured to rebel. The position of the peasants can only be faintly indicated here. Personal servitude still exists, though probably a majority of the serfs have been enfranchised. In either case, the rights of the lord have as a rule become fixed. The peasants are for the most part holders at a quit-rent or in metignage, though bound to the corvée, and to the use of the lord's mill and of his bakehouse. If serfs, they are memotables, that is, their personal property belongs to their lords on their decease. Such a right obviously cannot be strictly exercised. Necessary agricultural stock must at least be spared. The lord can no longer tieage his peasants at will. His courts are rather a symbol of his dignity and a source of petty profit than a real instrument of arbitrary authority. Everywhere the king's power makes itself felt. The peasant was beginning to be more concerned in the character and policy of the king than in those of his lord, though, if the latter was imprudent, his peasant's crops might be ravaged. The rate of the king's tie made the difference between plenty and want. The tie cut the sources of wealth at their fountainhead, while the signor only diverted a portion of their flow. The tie was liable to more momentous variation than signorial dues, as imposed by Louis XI. It was almost, though not quite, as ruinous as the English war. Under Charles VIII, and still more under Louis XII, the cessation of internal war and the remission of tie made these reigns a golden memory to the French peasant. Cecil says that one-third of the land of France was restored to cultivation within these thirty years. Moreover, it was not until the reign of Louis XII that the peasant felt the full benefit that he should have received from the establishment of a paid army. Under Louis XI, the discipline of the regulars was still imperfect, and the Arabon was even worse. For good government and for bad government alike, the peasant had to pay. To pay less for better government was a double boon. But what of that institution, the Estates General, that attempted to bring the three orders, in which the peasants were not included, into touch with the central government. The representative institutions of France had always been the humble servants of the monarchy. At the utmost for a moment in the time of Etienne Marcel, they had ventured to take advantage of the king's weakness and to interfere in the work of government. The interesting ordinance of 1413 known as the Cabochien, is not the work of the estates, but of an alliance between the university, the people of Paris, and the Duke of Burgundy. As a rule, the estates approach the king upon their knees. They supplicate, they cannot command. Legislation is not their concern, even if a great ordinance, as that of 1439, is associated with a meeting of estates. It cannot be regarded as their work. Their single important function, that of assenting to the tie, 
is taken from them almost unobserved in 1439. The provincial estates of central France continued to grant the tie till 1451, when their cooperation also ceases. Normandy, and more definitely Languedoc and the later acquisitions, retain a shadow of this liberty. But, with the power of the purse, the power of the people passes slowly and surely to the king. Parliamentarism was doomed. Louis XI only summoned the estates once, in 1468, to confirm the revocation of the grant of Normandy, which he had made to Charles. The Treaty of 1482, which required the consent of the estates, was sanctioned by not less than 47 separate local assemblies of the estates. On his death, an assembly was summoned to Tours, 1484, which was perhaps the most important meeting of estates general previous to 1789. Each estate was here represented by elected members. Thus the freedom of the assembly was not swamped by the preponderance of princes and prelates. The persons who took the lead were distinctly of the middle class, gentlemen, bourgeois, clerks. Three deputies were as a rule sent from each bailliage or seneschaussee, but to this there were many exceptions. The assembly was divided into six sections, more or less corresponding to the generalities. Paris with the northeast, Burgundy, Normandy, Guyenne, Languedoc with Provence and Dauphine, and Languedoc, which comprised the whole of the center of France, together with Poteau and Saint-Ton. Each section deliberated separately. Then the whole met to prepare their bills of recommendations, cahiers, which were presented separately by the three estates. The recommendations are businesslike and strike at the root of many abuses. They suggested or foreshadowed many reforms actually carried out in the next 30 years. But they had no binding force. Their execution depended on the goodwill of the king's government. With such high matters as the constitution of the Council of Regency and the settlement of the rivalry between Beaujou and Orléans, the estates ventured at most timidly to coquette. Finally, they decided to take no part in the controversy and to leave all questions of government to be determined by the princes of the blood, who alone were competent to deal with them. They ventured, however humbly, to recommend that some of the wisest of the delegates should be called in to share the counsels of the government. In the matter of the tie, they showed more earnestness, begging, indeed, almost insisting, that a return should be made to the lower scale of Charles VII. Large concession was made to them in this respect, but the government neither resigned, nor had ever intended to resign, the absolute control over finance which it had acquired. Parliamentarism had perhaps a chance in 1484, but the tradition of humility and obedience, the sense of ignorance and diffidence in things political, were too strong, and the opportunity slipped away. The Assembly of Estates in 1506 was summoned to confirm the government in abandoning the marriage agreement already concluded between the eldest daughter of Louis XII and the infant Duke of Luxembourg. Louis knew that his change of policy was popular and was glad to strengthen his feeble knees with popularity against opposition in exalted quarters. But the royal will was decisive with or without the sanction of popular support. After the Battle of Nancy, the king had no longer any single formidable rival within the limits of France. 
After the wars of Brittany, he needed no longer fear any coalition. His direct authority was enormously extended. Burgundy, Provence, Anjou, Maine, Guyane, with the dominions of Armagnac, had been annexed by the crown, and Brittany was in process of absorption. Orléans and Blois were soon added. His power was at the same time gaining, and not only in extension, as the organs of his will became more fitted for its execution. Legislation was in his hands. The ordinances were his permanent commands. In the business of making laws, he was assisted by his council, a body of sworn advisers to which it was usual to admit the princes of the blood, though the king could summon or exclude whom he pleased at his discretion. The amount of authority entrusted to the council varied. It was said of Louis XI that the king's mule carried not only the king but his council. It is certain that the council never dominated him. He kept all high matters of state to himself and a few confidential advisers, though he made extensive use of the council's assistance for less important things. Under a powerful minister like Georges d'Ambrose, the council's advice might be useful, even necessary, but its wishes might be neglected. On the other hand, during the youth of Charles VIII, the support of the council was a valuable prop to Anne, who skillfully introduced it into men of her own confidence. The princes of the blood, with few exceptions, were irregular and fitful in their attendance. The professional men of affairs, legists and financiers by their knowledge, industry, and regular presence, must have effectively controlled the business. And this was of the most varied and important character. Not only legislation, but all manner of executive matters came under its notice. Police, foreign policy, ecclesiastical matters, finance, justice, nothing was excluded from its purview. The members of the council were numerous, their total amounting to fifty, sixty, or more. After the death of Louis XI, some attempt was made to limit the numbers to twelve or fifteen, and the name Conseil Etois was applied to this smaller body. But the endeavor of Sirius was unsuccessful. The numbers soon rose again, and were further swelled by the great men's habit of bringing with them their own private advisers. The exercise of jurisdiction by this body often brought it into collision with the Parliament of Paris, whose decisions it sometimes quashed, and whose cases it evoked while still sub judice. Apparently, under Louis XI first, and afterwards under his successors, a judicial committee of the King's Council was created to deal with contentious litigation. The specific name of Grand Council seems to attach to this tribunal, which was especially occupied with questions relating to the possession of benefices and to the right of holding offices under the crown. It is probable that the Parliament, always favorable to the pragmatic, could not, after its revocation, be trusted in beneficiary actions to give judgments satisfactory to the crown. Hence, this extension and regularization of the exceptional jurisdiction of the council. The Estates of 1484 complained of the frequency of evocations and interference with the ordinary course of justice, but in 1497 the Grand Council was consecrated by a new ordinance, making it in the main a court of administrative justice. 
it then had in its turn to suffer the encroachments of the king's ordinary council. The Parliament of Paris was the supreme constitutional tribunal of law for the chief part of the kingdom. The jurisdiction of the king's council sprang out of the plenitude of the royal power, and was hardly, except so far as the Ordinance of 1497 extended, constitutional. For Languedoc, the Parliament of Toulouse was created in 1443, for Dauphine, that of Grenoble, in 1453, that of Bordeaux for Guyenne in 1462, and that of Dijon for Concord Burgundy in 1477. I was the seat of a similar tribunal for Provence after 1501, and in 1515 the Exchequer of Normandy took the style of Parliament. Outside the limits of these jurisdictions, the Parliament of Paris was the sovereign court of appeal, and a court of first instance for those persons and corporations enjoyed the privilege, cominimis, of resorting to it direct. Ordinances required to be registered and promulgated by the Court of Parliament before they received the force of law. The Court assumed the right to delay the registration of objectionable laws, and its protest was in some cases effectual, even under Louis XI. But, as a rule, in response to its protest, peremptory letters de jusson proceeded from the king, to which they yielded. The court has succeeded to the rights of the corps de pair, to whom belonged the exclusive power of judging those few members of the highest nobility who were recognized as pairs de France. When such a peer came before the court, a few peers took their seat with the other councillors, and the court was said to be garni de pair. Besides the peers, there were in the Parliament eight maites de rech and eighty councillors, equally divided since the time of Louis XI between clerical and lay. The councillors were appointed by the king on the nomination of the members of the court. It was usual at this time for the Parliament to present three selected candidates, the king to name one. But it is difficult to say how far this really held good under Louis XI. Authors of the time speak as if the king had it in his hands to nominate councillors at his will. But a councillor would not infrequently resign in favor of some relative who was allowed to continue his tenure as if no vacancy had taken place. The magistracy was thus in some measure heritable. Louis XI promised in 1467 not to remove any councillor except for misconduct and instructed his son to respect this decision. It is doubtful whether the venality of offices in Parliament, whether by councillors selling their seats to successors, or by the king, had begun to establish itself before the reign of Francis I. The Parliament was an august and powerful body. It could on occasion show a high degree of independence and even of obstinacy, but it was accessible to influence. To push a case to avoid delay, to secure delay, even to obtain a favorable decision, the letter or the personal intervention of a great man was powerful, the half-expressed desire of the king almost irresistible. In the highest criminal cases, the jurisdiction of the Parliament was often, especially under Louis XI, superseded by the establishment of a special commission appointed for the case. Such commissions could hardly deliver an independent judgment 
especially when, as sometimes happened, the prospective confiscation of the prisoner's property had been distributed beforehand among the members of the court. Subordinate jurisdiction was exercised in the first instance on the royal domain by prevots, vicomtes, or vigueurs. Above them stood the ballet or senechois, who acted as judges of appeal for their districts. The whole of France was divided into some twenty-four bayages and senechaussées, varying greatly in size. Roughly speaking, the former term is used in the north, the latter in the south. Royal officers, which were considerable in size, not only from the royal judges, but also from the seignorial courts within the limits of their authority. They held periodical assisi and were bound to appoint lieutenants under them. The bailli and seneschatis had by this time lost their financial attributes, but they still duplicated military and judicial functions. When the ban at Ariébon was called out, these officers assumed the command, and it was not till a later time that the office was divided so as to suit the two somewhat incompatible duties. Frequent edicts were passed to secure the residence of those important functionaries, but we not infrequently find the office held by a courtier or by a soldier on campaign. Among the great legislative acts of Charles VII, the ordinance of Montille-les-Tours ranks high and settles the general rules of judicial procedure for the kingdom. The reign of Louis XII saw considerable reforms in the detail of judicial machinery, 1499 and 1510, but the outline of the judicial constitution was not seriously changed. The codification of local customs projected by Louis XI was begun under Charles VIII and carried on vigorously under Louis XII, but not completed at his death. More than a century elapsed before this great task was finally achieved. This reform affected the northern part of France, which was governed by Dracotumier, as opposed to those provinces, Dauphine, Provence, Languedoc, Guyenne, and Lyonnaise, which were dominated by Dracot, a modified form of Roman law. There were many officers of more dignity than real authority, whose posts were heritage from the more primitive organization of feudal times. The foremost of these was the Constable of France, whose sword of office was coveted by the greatest nobles of the realm. Great nobles were also given the rank and style of governors of provinces, with vice-regal powers. But the functions of such governors were not an essential part of the scheme of rule. More humble, but perhaps not less important, were the secretaries and notaries of bourgeois rank attached to the king's chancellery. Many of these, Bois, for instance, and Balou, rose to great authority, wealth, and influence. The tendency to give real power and confidence, rather to bourgeois, clerks, and poor gentlemen, than to the highest nobility, is marked both in Charles VII and Louis XI. Of poor gentlemen so elevated, Comines and Dumbert de Batome are conspicuous examples. The multiplication of offices, especially of financial offices, is a cause of complaint, at least from the time of Louis XI onwards. That king, regarding himself in virtue of his consciousness of supreme political wisdom, as emancipated from all rules that experience teaches to small men, would, when anxious to reward a useful servant, create without scruple an office for his sake, 
as readily as he would alienate for him a portion of domain, or fix a charge upon a grenier of salt. The complaints of the estates of 1484 suggest that the venality of offices had already begun. Certainly, it was an evil day for France when the sale of offices was first adopted as a financial expedient, whether by Louis XII in 1512 or by another sovereign. The efficiency of the king's officers throughout the land is chiefly shown by their zeal for his interests in their own. Under Louis XII, a considerable improvement is evident in the matters of public order and police, but on this side very much still remains to be desired. The police is in the hands of the prevots and bailles, assisted by their sergeants. The prevot of Paris also exercised a singular police jurisdiction throughout the land, and Louis XI made extensive use of the summary jurisdiction of the Prévu du Marchou, whose powers properly extended only over the military. End of section 40